virtual events are not the same as in-person events. We're going to talk about that with April Ferguson today on Small Shop Fundraising. She is a veteran corporate event planner, and we're going to talk about her 10 years of supporting events at Cisco Systems and her best practices from planning a virtual event with 30,000 registrants. All this right now. Hello and welcome to Small Shop Fundraising, a podcast dedicated to small to medium-sized nonprofits and the topics and issues facing them today. I'm your host, Liz Hack, and on the episode today, we are talking all things virtual events. We have as our guest, April Ferguson, who most recently worked for over a decade with Cisco Systems, Inc. in North Carolina. April, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited about this. And you know this already, I'm excited because I sent <laughs> I sent poor April like 10,000 questions for us to review in a sh- very short amount of time. But we're, we're here to get to pick her brain about best practices, tips, tricks, things that she has seen in the field uh, from a corporate perspective on how to best produce a virtual or if you call it digital, event. And I thought this was important because nonprofits especially are still still trying to figure out if they need to, I know this is a dirty word now, pivot their, their in-person event to a virtual one or to continue that virtual event that they had last year, this year as well. And we have a lot of learning to do. There's a lot, there's a lot of um, knowledge that we can share with one another. And that's what I'm hoping to do with you today, April. Uh, before we dig into the, the questions and, and the topic, I'd love to hear and have you share more about your background in event planning and how you led your most recent virtual event. Sure. So like you said, I am from the corporate meetings world. Um, I worked with Cisco for about 10 years. I got my start actually volunteering for local nonprofits back in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, And that's how Liz and I met years ago. Um, (laughs) That's right. Um, So I, in my heart, nonprofits are near and dear. Um, But as the road would turn out, I ended up in corporate meetings. Um, So working at Cisco, um, my event portfolio over the years included a little bit of everything from small team meetings to sales roadshows to customer and partner events, board meetings, and recently digital events and also most digitally. Um, <laughs> so that's everybody, um, right? right that's everybody, right? Mm-hmm. We all got shut down and left at home and, and all of a sudden uh, we're all in front experts. of our computers. Yeah. We're all experts yeah. in digital all of a sudden. <laughs> that's right. Or we're expected to be yes. anyway. Absolutely. Um, you know, until until this pandemic started, the most experience I had with digital events was WebEx meetings. Um, because I work for Cisco and WebEx is a product, of course, we right. did a lot of things on WebEx. Sometimes we would WebEx in our clients to meetings, but not very often. Um, it was, you know, in person for the 99.99% of everything. So right. um, pivoting to digital was a huge, huge transition for our team. Um, across the board. Um, all Cisco events were told that they were not allowed to be in person and they had to 
figure it out. <laughs> um, some of them having a much shorter runway than others. Um, our event um, was supposed to be in Las Vegas in person in September. Um, the planning had started in December of last year, two years ago. Um, and so then 2019? 2019, yeah. Um, time flies. Yeah. And around March, you know, when everything started happening, the decision had to be made if we were going to postpone or cancel or pivot to virtual. Um, the recommendation was, of course, to pivot to virtual or postpone until the next year. Um, this was a first time event that we were getting ready to put on. There was some, some uncertainty as to what would it be successful, you know, as a digital event. Right. Um, so, so can I stop you real quick? Who made the recommendation yeah. to pivot or, uh, as I like to call it, kick it down the road? Who made that recommendation? So a lot of people had, um, conversations about that from the, it, it ultimately it was the recommendation of the planning team and our vice president of events. Okay. Um, and that went over to the executive stakeholders of that business unit that was hosting the event, and they all had to agree on it as well. Okay. So, so the top brass, it sounds like in your events. Yes. Okay. So that's, yeah. that's definitely something people need to pay attention to. Like, Top, your top leadership needs to be involved with this, this this decision to stay virtual or to pivot if you need to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we, our team went to them with the recommendation based on data and current events and things like that. So um, definitely have all of your information ready and then include them in that conversation. Okay. Um, so the decision was made to put it off until, push, push it back, excuse me, until December. Um, so it was the first week of December. Um, unfortunately, we also had some organizational changes happening and the event planning itself was put on hold until August. Oh, so wow. we could not pull the trigger on the events for December until August. Um, <laughs> made for made for a very short runway sure. uh, to get everything accomplished. Um, what we ended up with, and we can circle back, but what we ended up with was a December virtual event. Uh, we had a budget of $1 million and 30,000 registered attendees. Um, we had two days of pre-recorded semi-live sessions with channel hosts, entertainment, um, a video on demand library. We had one-on-one -on -one meetings and- Sponsor program. Very large sponsor program. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Okay, so, so it sounds like, so, a lot of times nonprofits, especially small to medium, don't have a budget of a million dollars. And they also don't have a, uh, a, a team like it sounded like you had. But they certainly, from what I've heard, have a uh, short runway or a short timeline in order to decide how they're going to you know, uh, pivot or, or change their event. And it sounds like corporate had the same, or at least your experience, corp your corporate experience had the same type of uh, timeline for planning an, in a, a virtual event. Once you decided that you were going to do a virtual or digital event for your 10,000, your 30,000 registrants, who had they already registered prior to the De decision to uh, go all virtual? No, no. Unfortunately, we, we, for a number of reasons, we had to push our registration back several times. Um, registration 
I think it had opened before we pivoted, but it had not been promoted. So we had, you know, 10 people registered that I think just happened across the event, but we, we pivoted and then I believe we opened registration about a month, about a month before the virtual event. And just quickly, what type of event? It doesn't sound like a gala. Doesn't sound like a you know a fundraiser that you were doing with Cisco Systems, but but what kind of event was it? Uh, it was an event for customers and partners. So we had, uh, like I said, it was a two day event, and we had two three channels of sessions going. So we had three channels running simultaneously okay. with sessions. Uh, one channel for partners and two channels for customers. Okay, so it's like professional development or or um business conference with right. different tracks yeah, we had, and then exactly we had technical things. sessions and and all kinds of things yeah okay okay cool all right so a little different than maybe what a lot of nonprofits for for fundraising events but nonetheless still very difficult because of the amount of time that you had which was very little and uh, and the type of event you're trying to pull off instead of in person and still trying to have that same experience, trying to compare apples to apples when it comes to virtual and in-person events. And that doesn't always happen. Right. So. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the biggest challenge of course, for any type of event, fundraising, nonprofit, for-profit, um, is figuring out your virtual platforms because um, okay. that is something that is, you know, in most of our minds was non-existent until this year. <laughs> so um, how'd you guys do that? How'd you all, I mean, well, uh, trial and error, I think um, being a tech company, we already had a lot of relationships with these vendors and we use them for other purposes. We had other teams that were already doing um, smaller virtual events. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a matter of figuring out which ones would work for these larger events in our case. And you didn't um, use WebEx? We didn't. Um, oh. Don't quote me on this, but I believe the reason was because WebEx is made for smaller meetings. Okay. Or I believe maybe 200 or fewer people, or maybe more by now. They've they've probably upgraded it since uh, this whole thing started. But um, we needed something that was going to be able to not crash under the weight of of you know right. thousands of people, and and also not not just a matter of crashing, but the functionality. All of these different platforms have to work together. They have to be able to tie in, right? So for a nonprofit, it might be your registration needs to be able to tie in with your silent auction and also needs to be tied in with your sessions or your your speakers, right? Mm-hmm. In our case, we needed the registration to tie in with our website, to tie in with one-on-one meetings, which we use Jiffle. We needed a live Q&A function. Uh, we use Pigeonhole for that. Uh, we used, as I said, Cvent for registration, and then we used RainFocus to tie all of that in together, and that was our main platform. And that's wow. just happened to be the concoction that worked for us. And um, so all of those integrations for your online uh, event worked seamlessly so that the customer or the person, the audience member, didn't feel like they were clicking around to bunch of different sites is is that what you're saying in theory yes okay. 
gotcha. <laughs> um, but nothing's perfect. We had um, feedback that our registration process was too lengthy, that people had to click around to too many things. Mm-hmm. Um, we had an issue right at the last minute with our Q&A function going live. So that started off a little late. I don't think the attendees noticed, but we were sweating bullets. Right. I don't think there is any perfect solution, but I think the event organizers just have to figure out what's going to work well enough for them based on their most important needs. Right. So maybe not just using a platform like so, like social media platform where you just push out all your your uh, pre-records and hope people watch them, but instead find a platform that connects everybody at one time for whatever kind of event you're going to have. You know, we're not just trying to do galas on, on online now where we're also uh, nonprofits are looking at escape rooms and trivia and karaoke type things and and so their needs are becoming more uh, creative and unique and it sounds like what people need to do in the very beginning is to is to really figure out what the goal is of the platform and what the event is going to look like and then go find whatever's in the market for that yeah, because absolutely. there's a lot to choose from. Yeah, and that was some of the best advice I think we got. We got it at the end, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but I think anybody can use it moving forward. And and just keeping in mind that a digital event is not the same as a live event. Um, karaoke might not work for your group digitally, or a gala is not going to be as easy to put on when people aren't in the same room you know, with digital, you, you really have to look at it from a completely different angle than we're all used to. And most of us don't know how to do that. The advice that we got was to bring in someone who had experience in television or production or something from the angle of knowing how to keep your audience engaged, even though you can't even tell if they're in the room with you, (laughs) you know, if they're that type of, um, point of view is very helpful very early on in the strategic process. Right. Um, Those TV producers couldn't tell if you're sleeping in front of the TV or if you're checking your email on your phone. They just, uh, and the same should, should go for uh, in per- or digital events, right? Event, a virtual event, you can't tell if someone's, you know, even sitting in front of their, their computer or, or on their tablet, right? That's right. And the, the biggest challenge of a virtual event is how do you keep your audience engaged? So how did you guys do that? (laughs) How did you keep your audience engaged through the two days? Well, we hope we did. We, some of the things that we tried, um, we kept our two days relatively short, you know, whereas an in-person meeting would go all day and have reception at the end and you'd be out partying late at night. We kept our short 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Pacific time. So a relatively short day. It fit in the window for all the time zones. Um, so nobody was having to get up at 6 a.m. to tune in to our event. We also rolled the event out regionally across the, the across the world. Uh, and we did regional replays of the event. So they were in Europe and Asia time zones and India, but they were out, you know in their time zones just re-roll out, I guess, of the previous event with some tweaks. The other thing we did, we kept our session short. The opening and closing keynotes were 60 to 90 minutes. We felt like 90 was really pushing it. We, yeah. we tried to advise against that, but that's what we got. So um, opening and closing keynotes, 60 to 90 minutes, and then all the other sessions were limited to 20 minutes. Oh, um, that's short. 
for sure. It is short. I felt like if you are looking to really get your audience engaged and asking questions, 20 minutes might be a little too short. But if it's really just, if there's not that engagement piece where we had live Q and A and, and during a lot of the sessions, it was quiet because I think by the time they really got engaged with it, it was over. Right. <laughs> so if that's your goal, if you really want a lot of Q and A and conversation, you might want to make it a little bit longer or keep the Q and A window open before and after your session. Ours was only open during the sessions, 20 minutes. And then we had 10 to 20 minute breaks between each session and those were moderated. So we had a host on each channel and they did a pre-recorded moderated segment to go between each session. And that included uh, sponsor videos that included kind of session recaps, you know, this is what you just watched. Wasn't that interesting? Here's the key takeaway. And now we're going to go into the sponsor video. We also had entertainment. Um, once a day, we had um, entertainment from uh, Broadway performers and from a magician across all three channels. To and how was them... the engagement with the, with the entertainment portion? Could you track um, any of that? You, you couldn't track it. So that's the downside of the platform that we chose and maybe other platforms as well. Can't see who's in the room with you. So you don't really, you couldn't really tell how many people were logged into a session. You couldn't see who was logged into a break. So it was hard to tell. We could tell at the end of the day, how many people logged into sessions overall. Yeah. And then the other thing, like I said, that we offered was live moderated Q and A during all the sessions, which if you want your, your attendees to interact, that's one way to do it. You can offer either a chat room or a moderated Q and A with a chat room. They can talk to each other um, with a moderated Q and A we had subject matter experts and moderators on the back end approving the questions as they came into the pigeonhole portal. No comments were approved, just, just questions. So if they had a question that one of our technical experts could answer, we would approve the question and then the technical an uh, expert would be in the, in the portal answering it. So they would actually see the question and the answer. So it was very carefully moderated and curated for that session. Would you do that again? Would you use that carefully moderated and uh, no comments, just question type? scenario again? If that's the goal of the program, yes. If you want people to be able to ask those technical questions and get the answers, then absolutely. Um, but again, if you want them to be engaged with each other and you have to still be a little careful about monitoring it because you don't know what people are always going to say, but you can do that chat room if you want them to be more interactive with each other. Something else I wanted to say about platforms that okay. I don't want to forget. I've gotten an email recently from the Event Leadership Institute and um, I did a course with them. They offer courses there. Um, there is a fee for them, but, and I'm not promoting them, but they offer courses in digital events and digital fundraising events. So okay. for nonprofits that have the budget, you can take a course with them and get a little bit more education on virtual events. But what they're also offering now that I was hoping they would offer is free reviews of various digital platforms. So you can go on their website, uh, Event Leadership Institute, have those resources on there, which I think is very cool because you can kind of walk through some of the various platforms to see if they might be good for you. All right. So we will add the, to the show notes the link to the uh, Event Leadership Institute free reviews of their of online platforms. That's a great resource to help. Thank you so much for that. That's that's good. Uh, just I think of, that's one of the hardest things. Yeah, just figuring absolutely. out which platforms you need to use. Exactly. As we all have become these experts, we <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden we need to, you know, talk to the other experts in events and see what they have have come to find. 
I wanted to go back a little bit and ask about what types of, of strategies did you all use to market the event, the pre-marketing? How much? What types? Email, text, video, printed materials? Well, yeah, I think this event would not be a textbook example of how Cisco would market their events because our runway kept changing. So I know that our audience engagement team was really challenged with constantly updating the marketing plan and figuring out how they were going to do that. But they had a schedule of promotions, and I think it began about two months before the event. It included targeted emails and social media promotional posts. Um, we had the event up on Cisco's events page so that folks could go on there and learn more about it as well. I'm not sure the number of emails that went out. I think it was one or two a week while registration was open. But they try really hard not to overwhelm folks. One of our challenges is that we were sending emails to three from three different resources. So we had three different lists, if you will, of people we were sending to. And there were a few overlaps on that list that, that we couldn't weed out. So some people got too many emails. <laughs> also want to ask a little bit more about engagement through gifts or recognition uh, of your audience. I know swag bags is a term that people like to use a lot. A lot of times at nonprofit events, there will be a small gift on the table for people to pick up. Did you guys use any of that? And how, how did you incorporate it into your virtual event? Um, we decided with an event this size that it was not financially feasible to send out gifts because we had over 30,000 registered attendees. The, the cost of shipping alone was astronomical. Um, yeah. So I would say that unless it's something truly valuable and you have a pretty small audience, otherwise it might not be worth it to spend that money um, unless you wanted to offer it up as a sponsorship. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a great sponsorship opportunity, right? I received a, a a recipe and a wooden spoon from an event that I registered for. They were doing an on like a virtual cooking demonstration and one of their sponsors was, I believe it was Caesars. And they sent out a printed copy of the recipe and a wooden cooking spoon the week before the event. So that in the, in the ingredients list. So I thought that was pretty cool. That was a, yeah. a way to, oh, hey, you know, you're going to join this cooking class. You need to make sure you have these ingredients on hand before, you know, uh, a nice little, a nice touch. But for us, it, it just wasn't feasible. So instead, we did a custom autographed WebEx background that some of the attendees could win. So they had a chance to win this, this downloadable uh, WebEx background that was um, autographed by one of the, the celebrity keynote speakers. Everybody loves a door prize. That's it right. Does, <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is, but people, I don't think anyway, people love to, to win and an easy to distribute gift, right? Something digital that if people don't know what a background is, you know, when you go on your uh, online call, your WebEx call or your Zoom call or whatever, the background is a digital background so that people can't see kind of behind you. It's, it's. Yeah, it was autographed by RuPaul. So by RuPaul. that was kind of cool. That's cool. <laughs> yes, that is very cool. Yeah. Something different and creative to think about. And it, they're becoming more and more important to, to folks as, as we do a Everybody is doing so many online meetings. I had one specific question. It sounded like you all did do breakouts to 
help people engage with one another and with the speakers. Did you guys do any polling or any other unique things? Um, unfortunately, no, we didn't do, we, we considered polling. Um, we just didn't find a need for it in our particular sessions. Part of the challenge was that everything was pre-recorded, So there would be no way to poll people and then announce the results because it would have been pre-recorded. So right. Uh, we couldn't pull them and then say, oh, this many people answered this question. There was just no way to incorporate it. We had good reasons for pre-recording. One of them obviously being COVID um, and that our studios were in California and everything was very strict about how many people we could have in the building and you know how many people could travel into California or when they could travel into California without mm -hmm. being quarantined. So that was a big deal. But also even COVID aside, Pre-recording takes away so many risks. You have a chance to edit the content. You have a chance to switch speakers at the last minute if you need to, or move, you know, change your agenda around if that needs to happen. Um, if you've got somebody live, heaven forbid the power goes out of the studio, you've just lost your program, right? Right, right. So especially for smaller groups that are doing it live, I think that's a challenge. For us, it probably wasn't going to happen because we had the, the capability, but we still felt like pre-recording everything, making sure it was edited, and then treating it as a live program. So we call it Simulive, um, but we treated it as a live program it. on the day of the event. So you had like a run of show and you had, did you have rehearsals at all? We did. We had um, rehearsals for all of the keynotes. We had two or three, I think we had three total weeks of recording prior to the event. That's a good tip, I think, to, to have pre-records and, and then to rehearse it as a group <laughs> as much yeah. as you can, right? Yes, exactly. I want to ask a little bit about sponsorships changing into revenue for you guys. How did your sponsor program, how did it change specifically with recognition and benefits? Did you have anybody that was new because it was virtual? Anybody who decided not to be a part of it because it wasn't going to be in person? Actually, I think because this is probably unique to the tech industry, mm -hmm. but our sponsors I think we're still on board the same way they would have been, or maybe even more so because it was virtual. At a live event, you know, we would have sponsor receptions and we would have sponsor booths and yeah. we would have all kinds of stuff and, you know, and a show floor of exhibits. So the sponsors would really have a lot of opportunities. I think our sponsorship team, I wasn't highly involved in it, but our sponsorship team did an amazing job with that pivot. Um, they actually exceeded their revenue goals Wonderful. and they had folks that they had to turn away. Oh, wow. um, but yeah, it was amazing. So they, they were able to offer, I think we had four tiers, three or four tiers of sponsorship. And, you know, when you're designing your platform, your pages and your website, you can give them all of these key spots, right? Like right. you can have your logo plastered right here in this corner and everybody's going to see it. You know, or, you know, if you want a smaller sponsorship, everybody has to scroll all the way down to the bottom and see you. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. that was a really a big thing that we sold. We sold sponsorship videos. So a couple of the top tier packages included various lengths of videos that they could include um, both during the broadcast sessions. So during those breaks, we had sponsor videos. They were, you know, a couple of minutes. And then we also had sponsors. They had the ability to post videos in our on-demand library. 
And, you know, that is still, I think, up and running and available. So our the on-demand library could be there for three or four months, you know, and sure. the sponsors still get that viewability from the benefit thank you from the attendees yeah and and that's one thing that uh, I, I see definitely a big positive for virtual events they are able to be archived and mm -hmm. you can learn from them no matter what kind of event they they are you can you can learn from it you can grow from it you can share new employees you know who weren't there for the, the previous event, now have something to look at as far as look and feel. It's, there's a lot of positives for a virtual event in that regard. And, and sponsors love that kind of thing, I would think, depending on the, the type of sponsor, right? I mean, they really just had to get creative and rewrite the entire sponsorship package. I mean, sure. you know, they, they went from being able to host a reception to, oh, you can post a video. So being able to find value, you know, find something that your sponsors would really value, I think, is, is the challenge and the reward, really. If you're, if you're able to, to figure that out and get your sponsors involved, it's great. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it, was, it went well for you guys when you have to turn away sponsors. That's always a big thing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, last couple questions before we get to my one common questions. Um, okay, so the event is over, right? Um, it's been successful. Everybody's clap, slapping hands. What does the follow up look like? Um, for our particular event, we sent out um, an email at the close of the event, thanking everyone for attending. And reminding them of the video on demand library and where to access that. Um, and then I'm guessing that at least one or two more emails went out to remind folks to take the surveys. Then we were actually, we scheduled a wave, a second wave of video on demand content to come out in January. So another email went out when that content went live to remind everybody, hey, this is here. It's still live on the website and we've got some new content, you know, come check it out. So you guys did more than one survey? I believe they did a survey for each day of the program. Okay, good. Okay. So I think that's another good tip. I don't think enough nonprofits do that. Survey their participants to see if they liked it. If they didn't like it, how can we be better? And that's a great way to engage your, your audience, right? Is to ask for their feedback. Absolutely. And there's, there's so many free survey tools out there that mm -hmm. there's no reason not to do it. Right. And I love that you all provided more new content. So there was another way, even after the event, for, the, for them to be engaged, for them to get a thank you, for them to learn something, whatever it was. It was another way to drive traffic to wherever you were trying to take them. And, and for nonprofits, it would be to that donate now button, right? And, mm -hmm. and also showing them that you can help them or drive value to them. Yeah, and part of part of that content too was follow up content to the conversations that were had during the keynotes, more technical deep dives of the, you know, for our attendees that technical knowledge is really important. So it's a good chance to add more value um, to the sessions that you already presented to to add those follow up conversations and more information for your attendees. So it's not over when you say goodbye at that event on day two. It is. That's right. You keep coming back. Keep coming, <laughs> yeah. Keep feeding them the content. Keep engaging your audience. What was the biggest win? Do you think? Oh wow. Um, <laughs> so from the planning perspective, 
pulling this a digital event off in three months yeah. was a huge win for us. Our stakeholders wanted to reimagine this event about every two weeks. <laughs> um, they changed the agenda. The session content wasn't approved until a month before the recording started or weeks before the recording started. We um, underwent a branding change. Um, oh. We had organizational changes, um, literally, literally brand new leadership to that organization came in over the summer. You know, that runway was exceptionally short and full of potholes. Sure. Um, I lots think of, we were- Lots of opportunities. <laughs> lots of opportunities to reimagine okay. things. So- um, Really get creative. We, Yes, and we did. And and we were fortunate, you know, um, to have a large team. Uh, we pulled in people from other teams that had mm -hmm. recently done their digital events. So we had a little bit of experience that we could bring in to help us, which was amazing. That collaboration between our teams was so valuable. So just being able to go from a live event to reimagining it, making it virtual and hitting a deadline, I think that is a win for any of us that can pull that off these days. It sounds like several wins. Yes. Wrapped, <laughs> wrapped up together. And, yes. you know, the biggest, look, looking at it from a, my perspective, you got Cisco Systems trying to do a big technical event on, on their, you know, turf, right? So on, you know, using the internet and using technology, and you still have to ask for help. I think that is a big aha moment for people, even outside of the tech world. That Absolutely. You're, you're gonna, it's, it's not a negative to ask for help. It will only make it easier, better, and, and more successful. Yeah. And, and absolutely. And know your limits, know what your organization can, can do. You know, a shining example of that is Cisco owns WebEx, right? That's our digital meeting platform. Sure. But we knew that for an event this large, we needed other capabilities and we needed a different type of platform to pull it off. So if we wanted the event to be for, you know, a few hundred people, it would have been awesome on WebEx. Mm -hmm. um, and then we could have promoted our own technology, right? But, but we knew that bringing in other, other technology and other platforms was the way to be successful. So again, asking for help, knowing your limits, those are huge in, in this pivot that we've all had to, to manage. April Ferguson, this has been really interesting. I thank you so much for your time and your knowledge on virtual, virtual and in-person events. I want to get to our one common questions before time gets away from us. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Question number one, what is one thing you love about nonprofits? Oh, I've, I've always had a place in my heart for nonprofits. Um, they, they are all out to do good. And I think that is so important and so necessary. People always need the help in whatever way or shape that's coming at them. And I think it's so valuable. What is one thing you love less about nonprofits? Well, really, the only thing I love less about nonprofits is that I could never convince one to hire me. Oh, what? <laughs> how I, I ended up as a corporate planner. I, I know. am completely surprised by that. <laughs> I'll keep trying. Don't worry. I don't get that. Oh, well, they're lost <laughs> in my opinion. But you get, to, I mean, you've gotten to do some really cool things. And I guess working, I have. I think working for Cisco is pretty cool, too. Yeah, so. it, was, it was a pretty amazing. And uh, I get to I get to volunteer for nonprofits in my spare time. So yeah. that's how I 
That's how I still make it work. Yes. They are lucky for having you as a volunteer for sure. What is one favorite resource that you would like to share with the audience? Um, There are a ton of great resources out there for planning events and especially right now in this pivot. So I would say that MPI, Meeting Professionals International, um, PCMA, which I think is Professional Convention Managers Association. Don't, Don't correct me on that. It's probably wrong. And the Event Leadership Institute. I think they are all doing a lot of great work to collect information and educate meeting planners and and um, the whole industry on what to do next. And lastly, what is one thing you see your industry doing to impact diversity, equity, and inclusion? So I took this industry to mean event people and not tech, uh, because I think tech is also doing some great things, but I think event organizers can have a great impact on influencing who is put on the stage. Uh, So something we always look at in our strategy content development is um, our experts, our speakers, our entertainers, they can come in all shapes and sizes, all colors, all genders, all backgrounds. So when we're planning our agenda and we're assigning our our speakers and, and recruiting those folks, we make sure that we have a wide variety of speakers so that that event feels more inclusive to the people that are attending. Oh, so easy to, to implement too. It makes so much sense. It just Yeah, yeah. And it's easy to forget too because you, right. you get moving on your content, you think, oh, here are some some subject matter experts, boom, 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 got them in the slots done. But then you you do have to step back and go, wait, what is this gonna look like? How is this gonna how is this going to come across to our audience? So yeah, you know, maybe making that plan and yeah, making that plan and then maybe having to tweak it a little bit is an easy solution. Yes, absolutely. And, and I mean, we talk about this a lot here in my office of because it, it might be the same content, but if it comes from somebody who looks like you or I or looks like somebody else who isn't a white man, for example, it, it might click better with your audience or a part of your audience. And that's just as important as having the leading expert, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that, April, ends my, my one common questions with you. I want to thank you again for being on the on the show today. Really great information, I think, all nonprofits and pretty much any event professional can use as we head into 2021. So thanks again for being here, April. Thank you for having me. I had a if, good time. Good, good. If people have more questions about our episode here about tips or something else about events, can they reach out to you on LinkedIn or an email or yep, something like absolutely. that? Absolutely. Yep. All right. I'll go ahead and put all that in the show notes as well. So this has been Small Shop Fundraising. I'm your host, Liz Hack. Thanks for listening.